0: If you have your Bible, I would invite you, if you would, open them up and uh, join me, uh, turn them on in the book of Colossians. As I said earlier, we are celebrating Advent by looking at several of the major biblical themes that have been associated with the time of Christmas. We shared last week that Advent means coming. It's um, the And so we are celebrating the coming of Christmas, and we are looking back to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby. But Advent doesn't just remind us to look backwards, we look backwards for the specific point of looking forwards. And last week we studied the hope that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we saw that God always keeps his promises, and, and knowing that he always, has always kept his promises in the past, he keeps his promises for the future as well. Promises that he makes in Scripture that one day everything will be made right. And one of the promises that we can have hope in in this season is that one day Jesus Christ will return. And in, bringing, uh, in coming that second time and in his return, he will establish a kingdom of peace from this day forth and from that day forth and forevermore. As I think through Christmas, I think one of our um, traditions um, that we attempt in every way that we can is decorating our homes. I think on the one hand, it's become more fun over the last several of years. But I think that part of the, the, what we're pursuing in our Christmas decorations, at least in, in my interpretation, is a, a, a sense of serenity, a sense of peace. That as you look, you, you see these, these gentle pictures of the, the worship of the baby in a manger. We think of White Christmases, um, which is very regional for us. But I, one of my favorite movies growing up is White Christmas. And we think of this idea, this, this purity and this serenity and this peace of Christmas. We sing about silent nights. One of my favorite songs most recently that, come out, that has come out, the, the line says, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. And what we forget about in Scripture is that the birth of Jesus Christ was not a peaceful event, but was instead an act of war. It was the beginning of the final act of war in a long-standing conflict that had, been, uh, had existed from the very beginning of the, the pages of Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When God prophesied and God promised that there would be one who would come, who would fix all of the problems of the earth, and the way that he would do that would be by crushing the head of the serpent. Christ's mission was a violent mission. And coming into the world, it wasn't very long before the enemies of Jesus and the gospel rose up in violence against him. You can read in the book of Matthew that immediately the King Herod was threatened. And what did he do? He launched out on an infanticide as he slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of baby boys ripping them from their mother's arms and killing them. It wasn't a a peaceful time. It was a time of conflict. Because, let's face it, conflict characterizes much of our lives. And the Bible addresses conflict in many different ways. James asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He assumes that it's there, even within the church. The conflict is at the root of of so many of our problems, and the heart of that conflict is a war, a conflict inside of each and every one of us. James asks the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it that you have desires inside of you that are waging war or essentially against the desires of everybody else? When we want something and somebody else wants the opposite, we're inevitably going to clash. And you don't have to look very far in our world to realize that conflict exists. Conflict is real. Just open the news headlines and you're going to find conflict among our leadership. You're going to find conflict in our city between individuals. You're going to find conflict in our families and in our homes and in our marriages. You're going to find conflict between siblings. You're going to find conflict between parents and children. And our world is seeking peace. Jump on your app store or, or do a quick Google search and you'll find that some of the most popular apps and, 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 and services available are some type of meditation service to, uh, so that you can listen to calming music and it can coach you into how to find inner peace. Everyone is seeking peace. And the Bible is ultimately a story about how God accomplished peace. And He accomplished that peace At great cost. Peace doesn't ever come easy. Peace is something that costs so much. And what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 teaches us that Jesus is the source of peace for all of creation. See, Jesus is actually the only source of peace. Look with me, if you will, in verse 15 down through verses 2 through 23. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we sit now in your word, and before your throne of grace, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would press in first and foremost upon my heart and my mind, that you would bless me with a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ that is so evident in these verses, but not only his glory, but his selflessness. His sacrifice. Not just for all people, but for me. Not just for me, but for all of creation. I pray that you would overwhelm me and each and every one of us with the full picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which accomplished peace, which promises peace, but it came at such an amazing cost. I pray that we would be motivated to worship. I pray that we would be motivated to serve. I pray that we would be motivated this morning to hold fast to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until the day, Jesus, that you do either take us home or rip the sky and establish your kingdom of peace forevermore. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, I, I shared with you last week that sermons like this are always difficult for me to prepare because we're plucking something right out of the middle of a larger letter. We're, we're literally walking into the middle of a conversation. But these verses here in Colossians are one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that share with us what the Bible, the New Testament, and, and the early church believed about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There are many that who, who believe that these first few verses, verses 15 through 20, were actually a hymn that Paul either wrote or that Paul took and added some things to so that he could address some problems that were going on in the church of Colossae. Paul has not actually met the Colossians at this particular point, he's writing to them and, and he knows that they are, are being tempted and that there's conflict that is going on in the church. And so it's amazing that he begins focusing their attention on Jesus Christ, identifying who he is and what he's done. And that we find, as we'll see, is really, truly the source of, of peace and the antidote to conflict in our lives setting our mind on Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the only source of peace. First and foremost, he's the source of peace for creation. As Paul opens this, in verse 15, he tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said as much in his ministry. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Who has seen? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus was talking at this point of the time when he would go away and the promise of his return. And Philip asks him the question, would you show us the Father? And Jesus' response is, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul says later in this passage of Scripture that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. But if you're a Bible student and you hear this phrase, the image of the invisible God, hopefully it it draws your mind specifically back to the opening of the entire book, which is the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, when God created the world and as he created Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that we as humanity were created in the image of God to reflect his glory, to reflect his beauty. Sin has corrupted that image within us in our relationship, but Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. But not only that, by bringing our minds back to that creation language, we then launch into this this dialogue, this praise of Jesus Christ for who he is, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was intimately connected with the birth of the universe and all of creation because he was there. The Bible tells us here that not only is the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn of creation for, that's language that that Paul is giving to back up the statement that he made, that all things were created by him, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. A lot of times we think that, that God's act of creation just kind of ended there with the seven days, but there were ongoing creations that rooted out of what God did in those seven days. That in creating the, the planets and the, the solar system and in creating man and woman, he therefore created something that would go on. By creating the man and the woman and placing them there and then bringing them together in marriage. The fam- they, that then becomes the cornerstone of the family. As families expand and they begin interacting with one another, families are the cornerstone of the community. The community, as communities expand and spread out, then all of a sudden you've got inter-community, inter-commerce between these groups of families. And therefore you see the beginning, the, the system of society goes all the way back to God's creative act between the man and the woman. All the way up to kingdoms, dominions, thrones, rulers, things that we, we can't necessarily see. We know that there are men and there are women who sit in seats of power, but that power is something that is invisible to us. That power, though in our nation, is is tied to our collective voice as we are given the authority to vote, but we don't create the positions of power over people. God is the one who is the creator of all things, and not just God, but Jesus Christ himself. From the beginning, he has been invested in the health and the well-being of creation because it was created by him, it was created through him, it was created for him. He is an active player. Not only that, he is still an active player today because the Bible says right here that all things hold together by Jesus Christ. Not only, he's not the God who set it up and, and, and created the watch and wound it up and let it go. He is the one that holds the molecules of the universe together. He is the one that that makes everything work. The reason that our world acts the way that it does is because God is a God of order. One plus one is always two because God created the world and the universe to work according to certain principles and rules. And he is the one that maintains that. And Jesus is invested in that. Have you ever been a part of, of someone's life from the very beginning, with whether it's your children, your grandchildren, or, or maybe there's somebody that you were tasked, they were hired on at work and you were supposed to train that individual up. And then you set them out or they, they left and they went somewhere else. I think about my mentor in ministry, David Mackins, and all that he did to pour into me. As I was still in seminary and he called, uh, we were connected by some of our mutual friends and ministers here in the city. And right there was a relationship was born. And he began pouring into my life. Even before I was ordained into the ministry, he was bringing me along. He was investing in my ministry. And I'll never forget that day that I sat down across the desk from him and I said, David, can you tell me what else do I have to learn that I am going to learn in the role of an associate pastor at this church? And he said, nothing. And I asked him in that moment for his blessing to begin searching for a place where I could serve as as a senior pastor. And that's what led me here. And and I think about the investment that he's made in my life and in my ministry. And he still stays connected with me because of that investment. And I have the privilege and the opportunity to invest in other people's lives, and maybe you have too. But when you invest so much time and you invest so much energy and emotional energy to someone, you become, in a way, linked to them and to their success and their well-being. And that's what we see is Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, as he is supreme over all things. He is is worried, he's not worried, but he is invested in the well being of the universe that he created. He's not just doesn't care, he's he's not just supreme over all things, he genuinely cares. And this is what leads us to praise him. He's not just some, some teacher who showed up and did an amazing thing. But instead, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the image of God. He is God, all of the fullness of God clothed in humanity who stepped into the world because the world was broken by sin. And in that great act of love, he, he stepped in to pursue his world and to fix his world. And it's not just you and me. We have this tendency to shrink the gospel and hold the gospel just to me and to my life. But what is clear in this passage of Scripture is not only that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, that through him, Jesus came to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven. Or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not less than Jesus' pursuit of you and me as individuals to reconcile us to God. But it is so much more than that as well. God created all things, God is concerned with the health and well being of all things. Jesus' rescue mission as coming into this world was not just for individual people, but to fix all that we broke. I had one professor, one, one uh, that said in seminary, what God declared to be very good at the end of, of Genesis chapter 1 is not something that he's going to crumple up and throw in the trash can. But God is concerned with the rescue and the restoration of the world. Paul is concerned about this. We said last week in the book of, in the book of Romans that all of the world is groaning for the, the manifestation of the true sons and daughters of God. At the end, we see the book, of, that the whole story culminates in a garden. It begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. As God restores a new heavens and a new earth and fixes all things, because God never gives up on his work. Our sin and our conflict with God causes the world to suffer. And Jesus came so that he might be the source of peace for creation. But he also came that he might be the source of peace for the church. The opening part of this hymn talks about Jesus in all of his glory and his supremacy over all of creation. And then he transitions in verses 17 and the beginning of 18. That he's before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Paul then moves into not only is Jesus supreme over all of creation, not only is he concerned with all of creation, he is supreme over the church and he is concerned with the well-being of the church as well. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood. His supremacy over the church is rooted ultimately in his work, in his birth, in his life in his death, in his resurrection. The message of Christ's salvation, the gospel message is here. Every element of the gospel is crammed into these verses where first and foremost we see the presence of conflict. You can look even a little bit down in verse 21 where Paul says, you who are once alienated and hostile in mind. This good God, Jesus Christ, who created all things and he's holding all things together. The assumption from Scripture is that God created it, and actually not the assumption, the declaration of Scripture is that God created everything good, very good. But if we look at the world, we realize that it's not good. It's characterized by conflict and brokenness and suffering. And that's because the good, God, the good world that a good God created was broken by our rebellion. We have this tendency, and I know that it's, it's the right translation of certain words in the Old Testament, but we have this tendency to limit our understanding of sin to just this mistake. And it's rooted, I think, in our understanding that sin is the failure to, to hit the target. It's, it's missing the mark. And I know that that's the proper translation and understanding of some one of the words that the Old Testament uses frequently for sin. But we have fallen into this trap to think that sin is just an up up-up an, an, an uh uh-oh, or an oopsie-daisy, that it's a failure. Sin in Scripture is an act of rebellion against a good and holy God. We are hostile to God. It's not just that we shot the target and it dropped a little bit. We've turned around and shot the arrow at God. We're that far off target. That's the picture of the world outside of Jesus Christ. That's the picture of your heart and my life and my heart and our tendency is to be in rebellion against God. And when Adam and Eve chose in that moment to disobey, to reach out and grasp and take for themselves what was not theirs to take, they broke creation. They broke their relationship with God and God cursed them and God cursed the world and conflict came into the world. And that conflict spread across creation so that you even see the, the conflict between creation itself with animals after the flood. And so our world is, is, is characterized by this chaos and this, this conflict. But we weren't merely separated away from God. We were hostile to his grace. But we also see that God is the one who then takes the initiative to accomplish that reconciliation. It says, In the beginning he was the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's God who sets out to rescue And here's something, as I was reading this passage of Scripture this week and meditating on these verses, that phrase that's right there in the middle of verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. At the end of that verse, we find out that the way that we're reconciled is by the blood of his cross. But that word was pleased to dwell. Wrecked my heart this week. And I pray that it just wrecks yours that no one had to strong arm the son to come and save this world. No one had to manipulate Jesus Christ to, to clothe himself in humanity and live here to suffer. To be beaten, to be shamed, to be mocked, to live in the face of those who were rebelling against God. He was pleased to do it made me think of the passage from Hebrews chapter 12, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He was pleased to do it because of his love. His love for the world that he created, his love for the church that he would create by his death, his love for you, his love for me. He was pleased to pay the price, and that price is infinitely valuable. Because it's not just that a man died. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, the people of God continually come to God shedding blood for the forgiveness of their sins. But because those sacrifices were insufficient, because they were animals, they could not fully cover sin. But instead, there was one sacrifice that paid the price once and for all. One blood that was shed that finished it all. God's blood. Because Jesus is not just another man, he's God. All of the fullness of God, clothed in humanity. That's how serious your sin is. That's how serious my sin is. The blood that is of the cross in verse 20 is the blood of God shed for you. And for me. That we might be reconciled to God. I've buried the lead, Paul doesn't. Paul starts from the very beginning that he is the firstborn from the dead. That the story doesn't end with Jesus' death on the cross, but it, it, fu- it is fulfilled ultimately in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It's Jesus Christ's resurrection that then creates and makes Jesus the head preeminent over this body. He's the first one to be restored. He's the first one to be raised from the dead. And Scripture promises that one day when Jesus returns, all that are dead in Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead. Not to die a second time like Lazarus and the others in the New Testament or even the Old Testament, but to live forever with God in the world that God has promised, a world that is characterized by peace. Because there will be no more sin. Bought and paid for. Finished. Jesus is the head of the body of believers. And his work not only brings us near, it washes us clean. He paid that price. As I think about this, if the supreme God Jesus is is the creator of all things. We've seen it in this. And that. the creator of all things who holds everything together, clothes himself in humanity to bring peace for you and for me. If God's willing to do that, what excuse do I have for not stepping into the life of somebody else to be a peacemaker there? What excuse do you have that's good enough to, to forgive you or excuse you from not stepping into the lives of those that are suffering from conflict, that are, in, that are torn apart by their own inner turmoil and struggle against sin. And being a representative of the grace and peace and mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. There's nothing. I did a teaching this past week at a Bible study on the Good Samaritan. And the the priest and the Levites come past this man who is broken and bloodied and left on the side of the road. And there are a lot of commentators and a lot of pastors and a lot of teachers who try to to justify, reconcile in their minds. What would be the reason for these two, uh, basically a preacher and a deacon who not only just leave him, but do everything they can to get as far from him as they possibly can and go around him? What reason would they have for that? Jesus doesn't give one. And all of our attempts to justify their actions are just subjective. Jesus doesn't give us a reason for them passing it by because there's no reason good enough for it. Jesus did everything necessary to bring peace for us. And so we should then, in following his example, go into the world to be, as he says, peacemakers to reflect him, to be sons and daughters of God, accomplishing the work of God. But Jesus is the source of peace for the world. He's the source of peace for the church. He's the source of peace for you and for me. Paul writes this with the assumption that his audience was at one time alienated and hostile to God. But maybe you're in this room this morning and that's not you. You've never thought about your sin as being more than just mistakes. But instead defiant acts against a holy and a perfect and a righteous God. You've never heard or really thought about the fact that that holy and perfect and righteous God, who you have offended, loves you anyway. And loves you through that and has paid a price so that you might be forgiven. I would invite you this morning to surrender your heart and your life to this God who loves you. To experience the peace that comes by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and allowing Him to wash you and cleanse you. These promises that He says here in verses 21 or verses 22 are available to you this morning. The promise is that he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's a promise to every single person who has received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's a promise that can be yours today. But that starts with acknowledging that this story is true. Believing in Jesus Christ as your source of peace to forgive you of your sins. And to do what you can't do by all of your best efforts in the world. I'm a good person. Well, that's great. I believe that you probably are. But God's standard isn't good. God's standard is perfect. And I'm not perfect. And you're not perfect. Jesus Christ was. And is. And he offers perfection to you and to me. If we would receive it by faith. But if you are here in this morning... And you are among the body and the children of Christ. You who were once alienated and hostile in in mind, doing evil deeds. Jesus Christ has reconciled you. That is finished. That is over. That is done. And he will present you before the Father. And the mission that we have in this life is to stay focused on Jesus Christ. There's a lot of stuff vying for our attention as Christians in the world today. A lot of stuff that is weighing on us that would leave us anxious and full of fear and would leave us distracted. There was a lot that was distracting the Colossian church in this particular day. But Paul says that all of these promises are there if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. How do we remain stable and steadfast? How do we not shift from the hope of the gospel? We hold fast to the faith that we believed in. We remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. Not just every single week, but each and every single day. We need to be reminded that the God who created the universe clothed Himself in humanity and walked among sinners that He might save us. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He is Jesus who has come to save His people from their sins. That's you and that's me. We need to hold firm. Tie ourselves to the ship so that no matter what wave comes or storm comes in our lives, conflict that arises, we can hold fast and firm to the faith that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember that Jesus has done everything to bring us peace. He's the source of peace for the universe. He's the source of the peace for church. I pray that He is the source of peace in your life every day. As you remember and hold firm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would worship Him And that you would trust Him. Because here's the truth of the matter. If Jesus Christ has the ability to bring peace to the entire universe, don't you think that He can bring peace to your heart and your life today? To your struggle this week? To your turmoil in this season? Jesus can bring you peace. I'd encourage you to run to Him today in faith and ask, That he would give you peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding that's rooted in what he has done for you in his death and his resurrection and his promise of forever. Would you take a moment, would you bow your heads, would you close your eyes and would you just go before the Lord? Would you ask the Holy Spirit just a simple prayer? How can I hold firm to this peace? How can I believe more in Jesus Christ this week? How can I live out this peace for His glory? Take a moment in prayer and I'll close this in just a moment.